These are the early days of Jesus' earthly ministry, and we come now to chapter 2, verse 1, and the story of the healing of the man who was paralyzed. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up your mat, take, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. This is God's word. Let us bow together. We bow in humble silence, O Lord, before your greater power and wisdom, your grace and mercy, and your truth. And ask again that you might be our guide and teacher, and that you might open our hearts and minds to the truth of your word, and that you might use this ancient story of Jesus' earthly ministry with real application in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Until this point in his ministry, Jesus has been popular, and he still is. People are coming. We learn in chapter 3 that they came over 100 miles away, that they came some as Gentiles, some as Jews, some as uh, more mixed in terms of their background, some of the peoples from Idumea and elsewhere. They came together to hear what he had to say. He was overwhelmingly popular. So it's just almost not to be uh, amazed at, that, that a house would fill up with people when he was there. The word came out as he got to Capernaum, he went to a home, and there the house just filled with people. So full was it that they were standing outside listening or trying to listen to what he had to say. And he's doing what he said he came to do, to preach the gospel to them, the gospel of the kingdom, the good news about salvation, because he is the Messiah. He's come out of the wilderness, and he's come now into the, among the lives of the people in the northern part of, the, of Palestine, and he's ministering to them. And for the first time, save during his temptation time, he encounters opposition. People are questioning him now in this passage for the first time. So as they say in the outline, up until now in Mark, everyone except the evil spirits and Satan had been amazed and had praised God when Jesus spoke and acted. 
But now the people for the first time are shocked and confused and some are even furious at what Jesus is saying. This is the only place we read this uh, miracle. It's not in the other Gospels and it's one of the favorites over the years that people refer to the, the man being lowered through the roof. I remember as a child myself thinking this was one of the coolest stories in the New Testament. The people, I didn't know, understand about roofs, but of course the roofs were easily parted and, and people could go down through them with just a little bit of effort. But this is a in one sense, a simple story. Here's a man who's paralyzed. Jesus heals him, tells him his sins are forgiven, and he goes on his way, taking his mat and going home. But there's a lot here for us to look at, and so let's look at it carefully. Some have made this a story about persistence and said, well, we just need to be persistent like this man and his four friends, and then you will find Christ. It's a matter of perseverance. It's a matter of dedication. It's a matter of ongoing commitment. And there's some of that here. Certainly they did go out of their way. They weren't just turned back by the fact that the crowd was big and that Jesus was hard to reach. They did go an extra mile, an extra, making an extra effort to drop him through the roof. Perhaps he was urging them on. For he wanted to be healed, and he had heard through the grapevine that there was hope with this man. I haven't been in a situation like this where I couldn't walk, but it must be a terribly frustrating experience. Not to be able to get up and to do for yourself. Always having to be helped and cared for by others. Not being able to run and play. How long was he paralyzed? We don't know, but he couldn't move at this point. And he saw that as his number one problem. I've got to get to Jesus so that I can get my feet healed, so I can walk again. I hear that he healed P Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. I hear, hear that he's healed a lot of other people who've come, a man with a shriveled hand and, and others. Maybe he can heal me, and I'm not going to let anything stop me from being able to walk again. Nothing is going to get in my way. So in that sense, persistence is in play. But Jesus doesn't talk to him about his legs. Jesus addresses an entirely different subject, and one that causes all kinds of uh, controversy in the hearts of those who are there. He says, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is calling to this man in the midst of the, all the people who are looking on, to go deeper to see what his needs are. To see that his preeminent need is not to walk. And the healing that, that is most important in his life is not of his legs. He wants him to see beyond his surface needs to the deeper ones that he has and beyond the healing ministry that he is bringing to the people to, for them to see the deeper reason why he has come. So he's not going to be content just to give this man what he asks for on the surface at the beginning. He wants to go deeper. In the same way, Jesus wants to change us profoundly. He knows that we have all these surface needs, these things that we'd like to have that occur to us that would be nice, that would be wonderful, and even deeply held passions. 
We want to be healed. We want to be helped. We want to be made stronger. We want our family to prosper. We want to flourish in life. Those are the things we think about the most. But the main problem in our lives is never our suffering. It is sin. If we took that more seriously and our prosperity and welfare less so, we would see what Jesus is reaching for. The main problem in our lives is not what has happened to us or what didn't happen to us or what others have done to us or what others didn't do for us. It's the way, the wrong way that we've responded to events. And this man's infirmity, understandably, not being able to walk is at the top of his agenda. Wanting to be healed, of course he wants to be healed. But he's allowed that good thing to become ultimate for him. As if everything depended on it. And if he could only walk, then everything else would be fine. And Jesus said, not necessarily. In fact, no. And to us, he says as well, if everything on your prayer list happened this week, you would still have deep needs that are probably not on that prayer list because of the profoundness of sin and because of the great need that we have to see as Jesus sees and not just to flourish in this life. This man is trying to use Jesus, yes, to use Jesus as his great physician to make him well. That's all he cares about. But Jesus wants to make him his real savior. And one day he'll care more about that. So this reaching deeper is something that Jesus does and it's a challenge to us. He, he, we ask for this and he gives us that. We desire our desires and he says, my, I have greater ideas for you. Not just think in, in the future, on the, in, in future days. What would he value more? The fact that he could walk for a few years on this earth or the fact that he could walk forever in heaven. It's not even close. But at this moment, his eyes don't see that. And so it's his eyes and his heart that need to be opened as much as it is that his legs need to be healed and he needs to be able to walk. So also with us. Let me say again, if God gave us the top ten things on our prayer list, would they include a serious reckoning of our need of him deeply in our lives? Or would it just be the surface stuff, the, the prosperity things, the things that would make life easier for us? I know for me it's a constant challenge to reach, to allow Jesus to reach more deeply into my heart and to twist and turn me there where I don't want to be touched to go past the things that I think I want and would really make my life easier, to reach for the things that would make it better, deeper, and richer. So the paralyzed man presents a challenge to us because Jesus presents a challenge to us. We are maybe asking for the wrong things. But then he, and as he changes the subject and says, your sins are forgiven, we ask first of all, and we are presented with a series of questions. Is this not a contradiction? As far as we know, this man is not repentant. He hasn't said that he's sorry for his sins. 
Jesus seems to offer here forgiveness without repentance. And in fact, if we look closely at the text, we see it's the fate of his friends who are mentioned. You see that? Some men came bringing the paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get to Jesus, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat the paralyzed man was on. And when Jesus saw their faith, now this may have included all five of them, but at least the immediate context is the four who are dropping him, who are lowering him into the midst of the presence of Jesus. We don't know. It's not clear. It would have been easier if, like on other occasions with Zacchaeus and others who came to Jesus and repented of their sins and they were changed in their lives, we, we could see the connection. It's more foggy here. It's more veiled. And I think perhaps with good reason to help us see that the clarity of Christ's mission is a growing clarity. It starts in the mist and is less clear to the disciples and to us in the early chapters, and it becomes greater, and we see it move with greater and greater clarity into the future. Also, as in verse 8, if, we, if Jesus knew what the Pharisees were thinking, then also he must have known that there was within this paralytic perhaps some inarticulate heart desire for mercy and grace. We are not told that that is true. But if it isn't true, then Jesus is acting completely on his own without any interaction with the man. It would seem more likely that he was there at least in some small, ill-expressed, unfocused desire to have Christ and his help. And that was enough. He didn't speak a word of testimony. He didn't give an affirmation of faith. Jesus saw into his heart that inarticulate testimony, his desire for mercy and grace, and he responds to this ill-formed expression of spiritual dependence. From what we look at the surface of the story, it looks as if the man is only interested in his legs. But Jesus not only is interested in more than that in his life, but he sees more of it in us. And he responds. He moves toward the man. Now we would have to say, when among those who have uh, come to Christ, this man offered very little. The boy with the loaves and the fishes offered more. But the, I love this story because it just shows the, the overwhelming ratio between God's grace and mercy and our little efforts, our amount of faith. If we go just on the narrative, we can't see this man's faith. But Jesus, in the context of everything else he taught, must have. And it's encouraging to me, I hope to you, to know that a mustard seed of faith, the tiniest of the seeds in the Middle East at that time, known to them, 
could come and become a great, not only a great kingdom, but a great life of faith and flourishing. And the birds of the air could come and rest upon it. This man's faith is ill-formed and poorly expressed, but it's enough. Because Jesus supplies everything else that he could want. Jesus, as I say in the application section, is aggressive with his grace. He comes at you and me and he pours his grace into us, even if we give him the slightest opportunity. This is absolutely true. Just a mustard seed. Just a flicker. In fact, faith itself is a gift. So any faith that this man would have had would have been previously given to him in its nascent and small and ill-formed form by Christ himself. He knew what he was doing. And he's saying, I will exceedingly, abundantly do above all that you ask or think. I have come to give you life and give it abundantly. Actually, Jesus creates his own openings. For faith is a gift and not an achievement. So this man, above all others, could not be arrogant and say, well, I believed and I persisted and I got in. He wasn't coming for that. He was headed for a concert and got a ball game. He wasn't prepared at all for this. He wasn't asking for it. He just wanted to know Jesus and be near him and, and be healed by him. And so faith in Christ must not lead us to arrogance with regard to those who struggle to believe or who are new to the faith. Someone who is not articulate. Someone who is not well-versed and whose expressions are ill-focused is nevertheless, by God's grace, welcome at his table. This is exceedingly comforting. It was challenging to, to us to see what, that Jesus was clawing his way more deeply into this man's life, and now it's exceedingly comforting to see that this merciful aggression is is at play in our lives too. For it means that it is not up to us to summon the amount or the quality of faith for him to work in our lives. Do you see that? The disciples say on one occasion, Lord, increase our faith. And Jesus doesn't answer that. He says, you're fine. If you have faith as much as a mustard seed, if you have faith as little as this man who was lowered through the roof and his friends, if you have that little faith, you can be saved. It's not about quantity. It's not about quality. It's about my merciful aggression toward you. I am the man in the wilderness, the second Adam, coming out of the desert to you. I am coming to you. I have come for this purpose, not for my own identity or for my own aggrandizement, but for your benefit, spiritually speaking. And that's what my aim and purpose is. And so these centuries later, his interest is in your welfare. And he is aggressive in helping you. We could all tell stories of how Jesus took a few loaves and a few fish and fed the multitude in our lives. And in fact, if we think 
that we've got so much faith and our faith is so good, we're in trouble. That was the problem of the rich young ruler. All these I've kept since I was young. And he goes away sad. So in this way, if we, take, if we seek to take credit for the benefits that he has given to us, we're on the wrong road again. But as I say, this is a complicated uh, little story, and it raises the question also of, of healing and forgiveness. And the commentators have had, I wouldn't say fun, but they've certainly wrestled with this over the years. Why? First of all, why is he forgiven without repentance? And then what is the relationship between healing and forgiveness? This is also on the mind of the religious leaders who are there. And they're wondering, and Jesus, of course, as it says in John 2, he knows what's in us, he could see inside, he could read their minds, and he responds without them even speaking their questions and their concerns. So having labored over this a while this week, these things I would present to you in response to what we have here in Mark 2. We cannot presume that the man's illness was a special punishment. Nor can we presume that anyone's illness is a special punishment. Occasionally in the scriptures we are told that the Lord's visited a plague or, or some kind of infirmity upon people because of their waywardness. But we're usually told about that. And it does, it's clearly there were thousands and millions of people who were ill. And the question of the sinfulness of their hearts was not the determining factor. So we cannot assume that the man's illness was a special punishment. Remember with the story of the man born blind, they asked Jesus, who, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he had to be born blind? Jesus says it was for the glory of God. He dodges that question, doesn't answer it. And I think it should be dodged here again. We cannot assume that the man's illness was a special punishment, but rather that Jesus is recognizing a real connection between disease and sin though not in the sense that a person suffers in exact proportion to their sinfulness. This is an important point that has much bearing on medical and psychological care, but is not always formally acknowledged or widely recognized. There is a connection between sin and disease. What those connections are, we can't see and haven't completely discovered. But to practice medicine or to practice spirituality without concern for either, for the other is to be blind. And Jesus is acknowledging that. He's, he's recognizing that there's something wrong about this paralyzed man's legs. At the same time, there's something wrong about this paralyzed man's life. But going on, because there is a real connection, however, it is completely, however incompletely defined between sin and disease, Jesus is now going to make war on both of them. He's going to acknowledge that they exist, and he's going to act on them. He's not going to wish them away like the Christian science, who refuse at least formally to acknowledge the presence of disease or any connection with sin. He acknowledges that this is a problem. This man is paralyzed, and it's, it's not right. It needs to be rectified. It needs to be made whole. He needs to be made, in order to be a whole person, he would benefit from being able to walk. And so he attacks that problem and he solves it. But, he does, but in doing so, by saying your sins are forgiven, he is acknowledging that it's not just a physical problem. 
He's acknowledging that our problems are never just physical. And he attacks that too. He hasn't come to just heal all people, or he would simply have established hospitals along, all along the, the, the Middle East. And he would have moved from one to another, from day until night, healing everyone who came. Many of his healing miracles, well, I say then the healing of the disablement or the disease is a sign of the forgiveness of sins. This is what I came to do. You can't see forgiveness. You can't even really feel it, but you can see healing and you can experience that. And just as real as I'm healing your legs, so I am also here to heal your sin problem. I've come to do both. Many of his healing miracles, as I say, also point to forgiveness, at least implicitly. So the declaration of forgiveness here is not surprising at all. Zacchaeus was well. But he was helped when his heart was changed so that his life flourished as a result. Those who were sick or dead, whom Jesus raised, showed that he had the power over those things, but also that he had the power to forgive. So in declaring forgiveness of the paralytic sins, Jesus is using his divine power, but in a veiled way. Here he makes no full explanation, as with so many other subjects, at this early point in his ministry. We, we don't see the connection. The scribes and Pharisees didn't see it. The man and his friends didn't see it. The crowd didn't see it. He spoke out of a veiled milieu in the early days of his ministry. He wanted his ministry to be veiled a bit at first, and certainly it is here. The religious leader's strong response indicates more about their eagerness to find an occasion to criticize him than their theological inquiry. That's much it seems to be clear. They were not just asking a theological question. They were trying to confront him, to criticize him, to oppose him. So this is the first real occasion where an evil spirit or Satan doesn't oppose him, but an actual person does. And we begin to see now the foretaste of the cross for the first time. This criticism is going to grow. It's going to increase down to today. And Jesus is opposed in classrooms in Oregon and in the halls of many universities and schools and in the hearts of so many. And we will see that as he continues to move in grace and mercy toward the people of Palestine, there is a tremendous opposition that arises. And so that by the time that the church and the Apostle Paul and the extension of his kingdom through them, everywhere they go there is opposition. And every time they open their mouths, there are people who criticize. And it begins here. In the earliest days, in the misty early activities of Jesus' ministry, they see this grinding opposition as old as Eden saying, no, I don't believe, I don't agree, I oppose you. 
Now we saw it more clearly in his temptation experience in the wilderness. Now we see it more surreptitiously, more subtly, but it will grow. Jesus answers their unspoken question by a counter-question that is not easy to answer. Which is easier, he said. To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, verse 9, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk. Here's my answer. Both his forgiving sins and physical healing signify the presence of the kingdom of God and the fulfillment of messianic promises as he announced in chapter 1. The fact that Jesus heals the paralytic is for the believer a sign that he can also, he also can and does forgive sinners. The miracle is a visible sign confirming and sealing Jesus' authority to forgive. He who can forgive sins has now appeared on earth so that forgiveness is no longer something future or far away, but something to be known now on the earth. This is his enunciation. I'm here. I can do it. And not only can I do this, I can take away the sin problem too. I can resolve all issues. And should I choose to? I can heal you from the most dreaded of diseases and difficulties. He has the authority. So in another more veiled way, a little more quiet and subtle way, he is revealing evermore who he is and what great power he has. And his power over sin, over disease and death means that he also has power, that we should also listen to him regarding his spiritual ministry and his work over sin and rebellion. And so all throughout his ministry, he continues to heal and to forgive, to forgive and to heal, pointing to his identity as our Messiah. So now, in conclusion, the man picks up his mat, he takes it and goes home. And implicit in what, as well, not stated in there, is that the, the, the waters parted, the crowd opened up. I mean, how could he have gotten out unless people pressed themselves even more against one another and allowed him to go? In their astonishment, they pull back and they say, wow, who is this who can even forgive sins? Wow, who is this who can show mastery over paralysis of a man's legs? Who is this? Who is he? His identity is more fully revealed in the table to which we turn in a few moments. There we see with full clarity why he came and why he suffered and why he died and rose again. There we see the full impact and importance of his ministry on the earth as our, as our Messiah. And so we're grateful. We're grateful that he's come after us. He didn't have to. We're grateful that he heals and forgives. He didn't have to. We're, we appreciate the enormity of his power and his mercy. For he can defeat even death itself, which takes us all without exception. 
death in that sense is undefeated save one. And that power gives us hope. Hope for eternal life, yes, but hope now as well. Whether or not our legs are healed by being able to see why he came and what he came to do and that he can do it, we can trust him and rest in him. And that's what he wants. That's all he asks. Respond to me. Talk to me. Relate to me. I'm interested in you. I want you to have me in all my fullness. I know you want your legs healed. I know you've got your list. But I'm here for you. And so I gave myself fully and completely at Calvary for you. Let's not be too busy, too preoccupied, too distracted to miss that glorious and gracious message. Let us pray. Lord, our desires paralyze us. We have things that we want so badly we can't stand it. We pray and we pray and we pray. We ask and we ask and we ask. We've got to have it. Our life will not mean anything, will not satisfy. Help us to see, Lord, that that desire we have is misplaced. Though it may be for a good thing, that desire should be only and always for you. To know you, to obey you, to follow you, to serve you. Make that my greatest desire. Make that our greatest desire. Replace the things on our prayer list at the top with our need of you, our desire for you. And though we come stumbling like this man and his friends, take that little faith that you placed within us as a gift and magnify it, we pray. Prosper and flourish it in our lives so that we grow and the mustard seed that begins so small begins to take root and begins to carry blessings to others. Thank you, Lord, for this marvelous miracle of healing and forgiveness. And thank you that you invite us now to your table to experience both again. In Christ's name.